0: Good morning. There are fewer people than I think ever with me, it feels like, this morning. Wait a second, there was a time, Justin wasn't there, when it was just me and the camera. I've got to look on the bright side, (laughs) but um, even though there are only five of you with me in the room, let me say it again. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, and good morning to all of you online as well. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. And I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning of the service, um, especially to those of you, and there are many more of you joining us online. This morning, we're continuing our new sermon series on vocation. And as we talked about last week, that word vocation means calling. And if you think about it, that's really the most important thing for us as Christians. We don't believe that we're alone in the universe. No, we believe that the central reality at the core of the whole world is that God loves us and that God calls us. He calls us, first of all, into relationship with himself, and then he gives us a particular calling for our lives, a purpose, a purpose that brings our gifts together and the things we love to do and the needs of the world. He brings all of that together. So last week we saw how Moses was called by God. And a story about an individual's encounter with God in a very dramatic way. And that's where it starts for us too. First of all, we are called to someone. We're called to a relationship with God. We're not called to something like a career or a job or an opportunity. But even as our first calling is to God, we also have a communal calling as the church to live out our faith. And so today we're going to talk about what that looks like, and we're going to use a passage in the Old Testament that describes one of the worst times in the history of God's people. The prophet Jeremiah tells the story of Israel losing their home after they suffered a great defeat. Their enemies uh, took them, Uh, away into exile, and we're going to hear about that this morning. Um, But the good news is that God did not give up on them. And so before we open our Bibles to Jeremiah, let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you show us this morning what is true? Would you give us your wisdom for whatever we're facing in our lives, but also for us together as a church, Lord, we don't come as individuals to this, We come together to listen to you. We are your church. Point us back to Jesus. Renew us, we pray. Amen. So if you've got a Bible with you, either a hard copy or if you want to pull it up on your screen, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible after the Psalms. So hopefully uh, if you're looking for it in a hard copy... That will help you locate it. And we're going to read chapter 29, verses 1 to 14. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elassa, son of Shaphan, and to Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. The letter said, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to- So this morning, we're going to see three things in this passage we've just read. First of all, we are going to see the challenge of exile. Secondly, the call of God to embrace the culture around us. And third, the anticipation of homecoming. So first of all, the challenge that Israel faced as they were forced into exile and that we face in a way today also. And then the call that we have to love the city, to cultivate God's kingdom in the society around us. And finally, the hope that we have in Christ, this homecoming that this passage promises us, and that in Jesus we have uh, the fulfillment of that hope. So let's start by looking at verse 11 on its own. If if this passage was uh, the whole collected works of some uh, musician, verse 11 would be their greatest hit. It would be the one you heard on the radio over and over again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's a wonderful verse. It's such an encouraging message. Now, if that's all you knew about Jeremiah, you might think that this was a pretty upbeat book of the Bible. But to understand the hope at the core of this passage, the real hope, you first have to deal with the challenge of exile because that is what Jeremiah was warning Israel about from the beginning. Jeremiah said that God would judge them if they continued to be unfaithful to him. And then God used the Babylonian empire to deal with the disobedience of his people. Babylon attacked Israel and defeated her. And so Jerusalem was destroyed, its people taken prisoner and into exile in Babylon. Here's a map of that journey that helps us maybe locate things geographically and historically. Last week, if you look at the beginning of that red line, last week we were down in Sinai and Egypt, and that's really the first great theme of how God brings redemption to his people. It's the Exodus, leading his people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And here, a thousand years later, they are evicted from that promised land. And this red line traces the journey they went on when they were deported by those who had conquered them into exile in Babylon. And you get a sense of the distance involved and the hardship there would have been for the people of Israel as they were forced to take that journey. And this letter we've read by Jeremiah was sent to the elders among the exiles. It was sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. The elders were the first to go. The exile started in 597 BC when Israel's leaders were taken away. And then 10 years later, Babylon came back and deported the rest of them. Babylon was the world's greatest city at the heart of its most powerful empire. Here is one artist's depiction of the place. I remember Judith telling me a story about how she took our daughter Lily into Toronto when we first moved to Guelph, or not long after that. And Lily was in downtown Toronto on Bay Street among the towers in the financial district, and she just looked up and she said, It's so big. Did we really live here? And and that's the effect that Babylon had on people. It was this global center of learning and civilization with the most advanced science and technology in world history. This next picture, a reconstruction of the city, gives you an idea of its size. And at the center, you can see a blue gate, the gate of Ishtar. Ishtar was one of the gods of the Babylonians. Ishtar was the goddess of fertility, love, sex, and war. She was pretty busy, I guess. Babylon knew war, and so Babylon, among its many gods, had Ishtar as you entered the city. Babylon waged war like no one ever had before, with violence, efficiency like no empire that preceded it. It deployed all of its wealth and power to destroy its rivals and extend its influence. So how on earth was Israel going to survive in this city? Well, we get a glimpse of hope in verse 4, where it says that it was the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, who carried his people into exile. It was not the Babylonians. So despite all appearances to the contrary, the Babylonians were not the ones making world history. God was still in control, working with this small and broken people he had taken as his own, a people he loved. Can we relate to exile as Christians, I wonder? Now let's be clear, we have not been through anything like the suffering of Israel. But I think you can still draw a parallel. As Christians today, we may feel like we're living in exile at times. Some of us remember when almost everyone agreed that Canada was a Christian country. The Lord's Prayer was said in schools. Politicians didn't hesitate to pray in the name of Jesus in public. And most people went to church. That is, they attended a service on Sunday morning, which is different, let's be clear, from being part of a church and being called to be part of the body of Christ. So one of my favorite examples of the difference between now and then took place in 1946, when InterVarsity Christian Fellowship held its first student missions conference at the University of Toronto, before the conference moved to Urbana, Illinois. On that occasion, the president of U of T showed up, and so did the mayor of Toronto. The conference made the front page of all the daily newspapers. Can you imagine that happening today? There's no chance it would. These days, Christian groups don't have special privileges on campus. In fact, they may face outright hostility. But what if all of that is God's way of calling us back to our first love? What if if he's humbled us over the course of the decades that in the West, the church has lost its former power What if he's humbled us like that to bless us? Like the challenge of this pandemic, the challenge of exile is an opportunity to call on the Lord who says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. So how can the church respond to this experience of exile? Well, like Israel and Babylon, we have two obvious options. One thing we can do is conform to the culture around us. In the book of Daniel, which is a different angle on the story of Israel's exile, a more personal story, we read about a young Jewish man who was tempted to conform to Babylonian culture. He wasn't oppressed. No, he was invited to get the best possible education, to use it as a passport to privilege, to rise in the ranks of power, to have the life that we all dream of. All he had to do to get there was to give up the idea that his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the one true God. Israel had another option as well. They could have condemned Babylon. In Jeremiah 28, if you flip back one page from what we read, the prophet Hananiah predicted the fall of Babylon in two years. He was one of the lying prophets we read about in verse 9 in this passage. He told the Israelites they just had to wait a little bit, that they should resist the evil empire until God's judgment came on Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and that it was coming really soon. So the church can choose to condemn the world the way Hananiah, the false prophet, was inviting Israel to do. The church can simply wait Hang back until God judges the world. We can go about our business and keep our distance from the culture. So are those the only two options then? Conform or condemn? The prophet Jeremiah shows us another way. He sent a message to God's people. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all I carried into exile. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord, for if it prospers, you too will prosper." there's an alternative to either condemning the unbelieving world around us or conforming to it. We're called to embrace the culture we live in, to cultivate God's goodness in the world as the Holy Spirit inspires us to do that, to plant gardens, to plant families, to build houses, to create the kind of culture that Jesus has in mind when he sends us out to be salt and light in the world. We can seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And the Hebrew word for peace there is shalom. And shalom is not what we might normally think of as peace. It's not just that. It's not only the absence of conflict or a sense of inner calm we might have. Instead, shalom is so much bigger than that. It's the spiritual, social, economic, political, cultural well-being and flourishing of a whole society most of the time we want a quick fix we don't want to wait 70 years we want the two-year version of the prosperity gospel in fact we might prefer it to come even faster than that i read this past week about a four-minute workout a day you can do that actually has positive effects And I wondered, I thought, yeah, I could probably probably fit that in, the four-minute workout. But God says something different. God says build houses, and that takes time. God says plant gardens, and that will not happen overnight. God says marry and have kids and grandkids, and that takes more than one generation. God also says, pray to the Lord for the city. Now, Jeremiah was writing to the elders, and the elders would have passed this on to all the people. So that means it was an invitation for the people to pray together. It requires discipline and creativity to carve out a distinct life for a whole people living in a setting like that, in in an empire that was hostile to them. Praying to the Lord also means getting to know Him, taking delight in spending time with Him, knowing who you are as a part of His people, that He is with you as you are called together. It means knowing the story of the Bible. And so this letter tells us to be distinct, but not separate, to be in the world, but not of the world, to embrace the city, but also to continue steadfastly in our devotion to the one true God. As I reflected on this passage, I thought back to the testimonies we heard on December 27th and January 3rd, and I realized that Chelsea, Callum, Ruth, and Reed all have one thing in common, Christian camp. What is camp? Let's think about this together for a moment. Camp is a distinct society. Camp is an experience of the Christian life that young people can own in a way. It's it's independent from their home where they are still growing up and are limited. It's a life together, day in and day out, waking up to the people you're with, going to sleep, knowing they're with you too. It's a way to serve and use your gifts. It's, it's also being immersed in the story of Scripture and learning about it, talking about it, trying to understand it. And it's a place where the Holy Spirit transforms lives. That is what Christian camp is. Now, the four of them that we heard from on those two Sundays have something else in common. They're also taking a year or, in Chelsea's case, two years off after high school to grow in their faith. They're not taking the years off, let me correct that. They're they're studying. They are um, pursuing disciplines of the Christian life. They are learning from mentors. And they are setting aside that time to pray to the Lord, to stop and to consider their calling. If you're a parent or a grandparent or a friend to someone who is, These things are becoming more and more necessary for our young people in order for them to have the foundation on which they can build a life that's dedicated to Christ and find their calling to embrace the culture with the love of Jesus. Are we a church that's helping them to do that? Could we do more? And of course, this isn't just for our young people. It's for all of us. Are we practicing Sabbath? Are we taking that time Are we finding moments to retreat from the busyness of our lives as adults? Because God calls us into a life of serving others. Jesus didn't use his power for his own benefit. He emptied himself for the sake of others. He went to the cross so that we could live. And he calls us to be people of generosity, to use our education, our skills, our jobs and the power that comes with them to share his love and to point to his truth and grace and salvation in Christ. I love the way Andy Crouch maps out what this looks like practically for us we live as the church, as we try to practice what it means to be the church. He does that in his amazing book, Culture Making, which I encourage you, if If you've always wanted to go to Bible college but never made it, uh, culture making is like Bible college in a single book. Here's what he writes He says, So, do you want to make culture? And by that, he means, Do you want to embrace the world around you with the love of God? Do you want to make culture? Well, then find a community, a small group, who can lovingly fuel your dreams and puncture your illusions. Find friends and form a family who are willing to see grace at work in one another's lives, who can discern together which gifts and which crosses each have been called to bear. Find people who have a holy respect for power and a holy willingness to spend their power alongside the powerless. Find some partners in the wild and wonderful world beyond church doors, and then together make something of the world. That's a big part of the reason why we have small groups at Courtright, and more recently, neighborhood groups. Not for ourselves, but to live out our calling to embrace the culture, to love the city, and to cultivate God's kind of goodness here in the city of Guelph. And the vision for our neighborhood groups was really rooted in this idea of being local, of planting gardens, of building houses, of a neighborhood, and us as believers coming together to dream dreams for our neighborhoods and for our city. If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, I want to encourage you to come out on Saturday, January 30th, for the event we call Courtright Connect from 10 a.m. to 1230 that day. It'll be a chance for us to reflect on who we are as the church, to talk about Courtright's vision for our life together in Christ, and to also, I know some of you love this part, to hear about what is Presbyterian in particular. What does that look like, that we are part of the Reformed tradition? Because that is a big part of how we understand vocation and calling. So I, I hope you'll be there. Um, you can register uh, by emailing me, alex at courtrightchurch.org. This is not going to come easy to us. And to sustain us through it all, we live out our faith in the hope of homecoming. We've seen the reality of exile this morning for Israel and in our own cultural circumstances. We've been tempted to conform or to condemn the world around us. But we've been called to embrace the culture to cultivate God's kingdom. And now we come back to the best-known verse in this passage. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That hope and that future are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Look, if you're at a place right now in your life where you feel like you're perishing, where you feel like there isn't enough hope for you to continue in the face of the challenges so many of us are dealing with right now, would you take a step of faith this morning and put your trust in the one who says he is the way, the truth, and the life, who changes everything. Jesus into our exile, into our alienation, into our loneliness, our suffering, and he paves the way to a new life, to freedom. He redeems us from slavery to our sin and self-centeredness. He frees us up to serve others, and then he sends us out to love our neighbors. We are called to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. But our ultimate hope is that we have been found by God in Jesus Christ. It's by his grace, not because of anything we've done or anything we might dream up. He has gathered us from all the nations, and he will restore what has been lost. He promises to bring us home from exile. He has given us a new and eternal hope, the hope of homecoming through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to who he is to be with him as we were created to be. And that is the best news of all. Thanks be to God. Amen.